Cornucopia Radio presents Geronimo! There were shouts of, Police, stay still, don't move! But the officers could hear people running, scurrying around like giant mice. It was mayhem for a while. It was a little scary. What would they find? Would there be resistance or violence? But soon the noise abated and the soothing sound of classical music came from a room in the house. Detective Constable Stephen Bentley made his way to the front living room through the hallway. Henry Todd, the brains behind the London LSD lab, loomed large like a bear. He looked menacing and defiant as two uniformed officers restrained him. Then there was Andy Monroe, Todd's LSD chemist, and Brian Cuthbertson, Todd's trusty lieutenant. Stephen and a colleague, DC Jeffrey, approached Cuthbertson. He was their arrest target as per the briefing instructions, so the officers identified themselves as detectives. He was arrested and informed there was a search warrant. Cuthbertson said, there's a lot of you. If only he knew then what was to happen at dawn the following morning. Over 800 police officers throughout England, Wales and Scotland, together with coordinated swoops in France and Australia, executing Misuse of Drugs Act search warrants as a result of information, intelligence and evidence gathered during the Operation Julie Inquiry. Cuthbertson may very well have revised his observation that there were a lot of them, if he knew what was soon to come. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators, UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years, and then retrained as a lawyer and practiced in criminal law. Now they're both retired and review cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they'll discuss the cases they're reviewing and interview relevant parties including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. The next case for review is the counter-drug investigation, Operation Julie, which took place in the mid-70s and an interview with one of the undercover agents involved in the investigation, Stephen Bentley. Well, we'd just like to welcome everybody back and this is the fourth and final part of our look at Operation Julie and in particular the role that Stephen Bentley and his partner Eric Wright played in Operation Julie. So if we just have a a look at what we've covered in the first three episodes, Stephen's initial role was as part of the surveillance on the Manor House Plas Lissin in Carno, mid-Wales, because it was believed that there was an LSD laboratory there. And indeed, that was the case. But as the operation ceased at Plas Lissin, then Stephen met Eric Wright, who was to be his undercover partner, wasn't he? And they were to move on to Clandowie Breffy. Yep. He buddied up with Eric and were deployed into uh, Wales to try and make contact and infiltrate Smiles, as we as he's known. That's right. We also heard about kind of a spin-off from what was happening in Clandowie Breffy, and that was that Stephen and Eric travelled to Liverpool with one of Smiles' associates, who was referred to as Blue. And he went to Liverpool to meet Bill, a Canadian guy. And that's where we heard about that scary confrontation when 
Bill put two fingers to the side of Stephen's head uh, and basically pretending to, to, to shoot, shoot him. him if he was uh, if it turned out that he was a, a police officer and he kind of had to talk his way talk out. his talk his way talk his way out of that. And we've also spoken about the lengths that that Eric and Stephen went to um, to identify people who the senior investigating officer, Dick Lee, wanted identifying. And we heard that there was a guy called Doug um, that basically Dick Lee needed to know who that was and, and what was his role. And it came to pass that they went drinking with Smiles one day and they were joined by Doug. And in order to identify Doug under the influence of drink, Stephen, I think he describes flicking his hip and he pushed Doug through a window, didn't he? And then rang the local police and said, there's a bloke just smashed a window. And the police came down, arrested Doug. And in that way, they managed to find out who he was, fingerprint, photograph and properly identify him. An unorthodox method. And un- yes. <laughs> but that's what Stephen on the spur of the moment, made that decision, didn't he? And that's what he says. And as we know, it's a fluid situation that you have to take advantage of whatever the situation throws at you. Yeah, who knew Doug was going to turn up on on, the on that day and, and go drinking with them? But I think it's also important to understand that Operation Julie was a massive operation. And Stephen and Eric, at this point, are in Flandaui Breffy and monitoring smiles and the associates that that he hangs around with and getting information in relation to what was happening in Flandawi Breffy. But we've got to say that Operation Julie was a much, much bigger operation. There's surveillance going off, there's other inquiries and that kind of thing. Yes, yeah, so, uh, you know, as, as Stephen rightly says, he and Eric played a part in the, uh, I would call it a jigsaw, yeah. It's all the pieces were out there all over the country and, and, and further than that, weren't they, all over the world, really. And it was trying to join the jigsaw together to see what the how the operation worked and who was involved and how to arrest them at the end of the day. And as far as the the podcast is concerned, we've followed Stephen's journey through Operation Julie. But as I say, it was a much bigger operation than than that which was happening in Clandowie Breffy, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're now a long time after the event and quite a few of the other people have gone and some have died, unfortunately. So, But Stephen was an integral part and that's why, uh, thankfully, he's he's managed to uh, cooperate with us to put this together, hasn't he? Yeah, and as Stephen will tell us now, a picture is slowly coming together that how Smiles dealt with drugs and distributed drugs and what other inquiries were going on in relation to that. Whilst we were there, one of the things, one of the developments was that uh, uh, a telephone intercept, uh, a phone tap, if you want to call it that, was placed on Smiles' home. Um, so there was constant monitoring of his phone calls and it did become obvious, although he was very cautious about what he said on the phone, it did become obvious on one occasion 
that he was uh, dealing in thousands and thousands of LSD tablets. But yeah, another development was, which Eric and I had no personal involvement in, we, we discovered over the telephone intercept that he was mailing a suspect package, uh, suspect meaning a package of drugs, to Birmingham. Uh, that was intercepted at uh, the post office in Birmingham and uh, Clandowie Brevet. It was marked up and that turned out to be full of LSD tablets, which eventually went on to John Priest in Birmingham. Uh, Mary, who I mentioned, uh, Smart's partner, Mary, John Priest was Mary's uh, former husband and also a drug dealer in Birmingham. He received some time uh, for being involved in the LSD distribution network when everybody was sentenced in 1978. But yeah, all these things were going on uh, whilst Eric and I were, um, you know, mingling with, with smiles and and we also became aware that uh, Dick Lee was uh, was in close liaison with Customs and the DEA based in London was a frequent visitor to Devizes. And, uh, and we found out through Customs and the DEA that uh, Smiles had also been paying a visit to an address in West London trying to organise a big supply of cocaine. The story was he was supposed to be doing a swap LSD for cocaine, which um, again links in with the trip to Liverpool Eric and I had and the, with Blue and the Canadian gangster because at a much later stage, just before we left Landauer Revy, uh, Smiles had become aware of our involvement up in Liverpool and the cocaine deal, big cocaine deal, and asked me directly if I could supply half a kilo of cocaine. So is it fair to summarise uh, your undercover role that uh, you greatly assisted Operation Julie by uh, gaining the confidence of Smiles? You could uh, report on his movements if he'd disclosed he was going away the following day. Obviously, the the other surveillance and technical surveillance would have helped to confirm where he was going. So your role was sort of, as Dick Lee wanted you to do, be the eyes, eyes and ears and uh, report back to corroborate other intelligence that was coming in. Yeah, I like to think so. And, uh, you know, Dick Lee certainly always thought our time uh, was worthwhile. You know, I know I've said uh, on several occasions now there was never any expectation that Smiles was going to approach us and say, uh, oh, do you boys want a few thousand LSD times? You know, it wasn't going to happen, and it didn't happen. It was never expected to happen. You know, with being the eyes and ears on the ground. Of course, one crucial part was the identification of Doug, which, uh, you know, bearing in mind that our brief, Operation Julie Brief, was to not only knock out the uh, laboratories, but also the whole distribution network. So, you know, Doug was one below Smiles, so that was another, another brick in the wall, so to speak. So, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, and there was another occasion when, the intercept picked up that he was going to meet Russ Spencerly. Russ Spencerly was one above Smiles in the distribution network. And there was a panic on because uh, nobody could uh, decipher the code for the pub where they were supposed to be meeting. That was eventually deciphered, and it was a pub in Lampeter. So Dick Lee asked Eric and I if uh, 
we had a problem going there and seeing if Smiles met, met Spencerly. We said, well, it's a pub and it's in Wales, so it's our natural habitat. So we did go, but uh, we didn't see anything at all. Uh, but on another occasion, uh, two other members of uh, the Operation Julie squad uh, saw Smiles meeting up with Spencer Lee in a very remote pub called the Ram Inn. And on that occasion, a large plastic bag was exchanged or handed over Spencer Lee to Smiles, and it was many, many thousands of LSD tablets worth a hell of a lot of money. Vince Castle, a DS from Gloucestershire, was one of those on the on that surveillance, and he. He, de- he was desperately pleading with Dick Lee to go in and make a bust because that would have been the b- biggest LSD drug bust in the UK ever at that particular time. I mean, it paled into insignificance later on after the major bust when all the major conspirators were, were arrested and all many drug seizures were made. But yeah, there was stuff going on all the time. The LSD, where was that coming from at that time? Smiles LSD was coming from, uh, was being made in 23 Seymour Road, Hampton Wick, uh, Greater London. And uh, from there it was going to um, Leaf Fielding in, uh, in Reading uh, by way of secret drops, uh, holes, big holes dug in forestry commission land. And Brian Cuthbert and Henry Todd's Henry Todd was the main man at Seymour Road. Uh, Andy Munro was the chemist there. Cuthbertson was uh, Todd's lieutenant, his, his uh, second in charge, so to speak. Cuthbertson was taking, uh, dropping off the drugs for Leaf Fielding in Reading. Leaf Fielding in Reading was going out to places like Nine Mile Cross to recover the drop. And... Uh, and then Leaf Fielding would uh, pass that on to Russ Spencerly. Russ Spencerly's main point of distribution was Smiles. And then from Smiles, the spider of the network would creep out to people like Doug Flanagan and the two guys in, in Wales, McDonnell and Lockhead. Who were, I mean, you know, these, for example, you know, McDonnell and Lockhead were knocking out thousands and thousands of tablets a week not just throughout the UK, but also send them overseas to places like Australia. You know, it was big business. And all of this was done on on trust. It was a credit basis. So in other words, Smiles did not pay for anything until it was all gone and he'd got his money in. I mean, that's quite remarkable with, uh, with drug dealers. Certainly wouldn't happen these days. When you left uh, Wales, what... what- cover did you give to the local smiles and the others to explain your absence was it the normal going car dealing or that sort of thing yeah it was uh, it was going back to the uh, the car dealing and also we spread about the story that eric's brother had turned up he'd been found so there was no need for us to be any longer in that neck of the woods so uh, between that and you know, we've got to concentrate on making a bit more money by uh, by car dealing. So that that covered our our absence.
So let's just go over what, what we've heard so far, and that is back in the late 60s, early 70s, Henry Todd, David Solomon and Richard Kemp were involved in the first stages of LSD production. For whatever reason, those parties separated. David Solomon and Richard Kemp moved to Wales and Kemp set up the LSD lab at Plaslissin and that's the manor house where uh, Stephen was conducting surveillance with others. And then at some point, Henry Todd set up an LSD lab at 23 Seymour Road, Hampton Wick, London. And as his chemist, he recruited Andy Munro. So now you've got two separate LSD labs producing and circulating, distributing, not just within the UK, but globally. Yes, we don't know exactly why they did split, do we? We don't, we haven't, whether it was a fallout or a difference of opinion or, you know, People, like any business, get upset that they're not getting the share they think or whatever. We we don't know, but we do know that they did split up. They did split up and they both ran um, a profitable LSD laboratory and managed to put that LSD into distribution. And what we've heard from Stephen is that he and Eric had now left Wales with a a plausible exit strategy and they were brought back into the wider Operation Julie group. And at that point, Stephen and Eric were concentrating more on the London laboratory. And as we've said, that was at 23 Seymour Road. So now you've got Stephen and Eric as part of the wider squad and that wider Operation Julie squad has been collating information, conducting other surveillance, collecting evidence and also doing the intercepts. Then at some point, the decision has to be made. When do we do the raids? And that's a difficult decision to make, isn't it? Well, it is. Having been involved, nothing as big as this, but similar sort of scenarios. Clearly, there was a huge amount of police resources gone into this and staffing, and it had run for a long time. And and you it, don't want to mess it up right at the end, do you? you? Don't, well, you don't want to mess it up, but you want to go when the time is right. And obviously, decisions with Dick Lee and people above him were made to the effect of, you know, what have we got now? And is this the best we're going to get? And if we, it, it's a very difficult one to call, but. Also, they're under pressure to justify having such a phenomenal amount of police staff and resources concentrating on this one particular job. And somebody's got to look at it, overview it and say, we go now. And, and that's probably what would have happened. Yeah, and, and it is a, it's a tense time. You've got to consider, is the timing right? Are we going too early? Are we going too late? Can all the suspects be arrested without the others getting wind of exactly what's happening? And both of us remember times when we went to briefings, no operation anywhere near as big as this, but we can remember briefings prior to the execution of, of warrants. And, and it's a time that brings, well, how would you describe it? Nerves, adrenaline, excitement, fear. Well, I've been involved in nothing as big as this. I mean, at the end, there was 800 
people involved, some mostly police and other civilians like uh, forensic people and all the rest of it. But they got to the point where a decision had been made at a high level that we've achieved now what we probably the best we're going to get. And although they'd split and there was a Wales connection and a London connection, I'm quite sure that they all sort of ran in tandem with each other because it's a supply and demand, isn't it? LSD and other drugs. And this one laboratory might not have enough. They'd, they'd contact their friends and they're all associates. So it's it, it made it into a, a nationwide and, and almost worldwide organisation, but in two separate parts. And as we've mentioned before, they'd be fearful of being um, attacked by their own kind or other drug dealers who want to steal from them. So they'd be on edge themselves. And as a cop going through the front door on the day that they raided, obviously, and I've seen it many, many times, people don't hear the fact or appreciate you the police and think it may be other gangs coming to steal what you've got. And very often there's punch-ups until they realise that you are the police. <laughs> it's happened many times. And, and, the, and of course, there's other factors like, you know, they're going into houses with drugs and laboratories, which we've already explained is dangerous. They can explode. They can be very dangerous. Yeah, so Operation Julie raids are about to begin and Stephen tells us what happened next. What happened was some weeks or maybe two or three months before um, the busts actually happened, which was in uh, the March of 1977. Uh, Dick Lee had the foresight to bring in somebody else to supervise the, and organise the whole arrest and search operation, realising that it was going to be a vast task. So he brought in a, a detective superintendent from the West Midlands Regional Crime Squad and he got it all organised, so everything was ready, you know, full briefing and everything, for the time when it was ready to move in. Uh, that time became apparent because right at the very end of uh, the surveillance at Seymour Road, uh, Hampton Wick, Greater London, a group of us, including myself and Alan Buxton, another West Midlands uh, detective, we followed Henry Todd to uh, the, the tip uh, at Reading. So we followed him onto there and saw them, uh, there was Todd and one other, uh, depositing uh, a load of trash, a load of rubbish, which turned out to be them breaking up the uh, equipment from the LSD laboratory. We didn't know that for sure at the time. Todd and uh, the other guy left in, in the Volvo. We moved in. We seized all the broken up equipment and it was rushed off to the laboratory. So that was the final piece of the jigsaw, really. We were now ready to rock and roll to, to do all the bus. So literally within days, uh, the bus were, um, were all arranged for, yeah, I'm sure it was the Saturday morning, dawn raids. And it, this involved organising 800 police officers all over the UK. There were also a bus in France as well, all synchronised, all connected to the LSD network distribution and the, two, and the laboratories, of course. 
So everything was planned to go ahead early doors uh, on the Saturday morning, March 1977. We still had a, a skeleton surveillance on uh, Seymour Road. I'd already mentioned intercepts, telephone taps. And I think it was the telephone tap, actually, we still had on uh, 23 Seymour Road. And we found out that the, the milk had been cancelled. Dick Lee quite rightly thought, oh, they're going away on holiday, as it turned out some discreet inquiries, they plan to go away on the Saturday. So the bust of uh, 23 Seymour Road was uh, was advanced. And uh, Eric Wright, my undercover buddy, and I were fortunate enough to be uh, chosen for the team that uh, was going to um, raid 23 Seymour Road. So we all, all that was arranged rather hastily because it was brought forward, as I say, once we'd had the briefing, then we yeah, we got in, into position and a bunch of us scaled the wall, went round to the back of the house, including myself and Eric. One of the team had a pickaxe handle or whatever it was, ready to use force to get in the premises quickly, smashed the French windows. And I distinctly remember Eric shouting at the time as we went in, Geronimo, he's always he's always denied that, but I saw his lips move and I know he said it. But uh, you know the the adrenaline was very high, so we went in, and uh, there was a lot of panic going on, apart from the sound of classical piano music from somewhere in the house. It was a big, big house. First thing I remember, because we were we all had our specific briefs, and I was uh, briefed to um, arrest Brian Cuthbertson. Henry Todd's right-hand man, with another uh, yet a, another West Midlands detective. So uh, as we were looking to see where Brian Cuthbertson was, uh, we saw Henry Todd in the hallway being held back by a couple of our colleagues. And my goodness, he was a big guy. And we'd, we'd been briefed at the Lensbury briefing by Dick Lee that it was suspected that he could be violent. And uh, he certainly had that look about him. I think that if it had been one or two officers... I think he might have given it a go, you know. He was a big guy, a rugby player, played for London Scottish. He saw sense and saw the numbers involved. I think there was about 20 of us that raided 23 Seymour Road. So we went in through to another room, and actually it was Brian Cuthbertson that was playing the piano. And uh, he was there with his lady, his good lady. And uh, anyway, we arrested him, found a small amount of cocaine, which, of course, he denied that it was his. Uh, long story short, we arrested him and took him to Swindon Police Station. And uh, so by the time we woke up the following morning, it was, you know, all of the 800 coppers all over the UK, England, Wales, Scotland. The raids in France had been done. Raids had been done in places, countries like Australia that were all connected. It was all timed simultaneously. So it was just... When I say it was a hive of activity, Swindon Police Station, that's an understatement. It was just unbelievable. I mean, the cells were chock-a-block full. I mean, all the lesser people were carted off, you know, to local police stations, people not seriously involved at the top or in the, you know, the top end of the distribution network or the manufacturer of the LSD. But, you know, all the main conspirators were all locked up as Swindon, so it was... It was uh, an organised chaos, and it was organised. It was absolutely fantastically well organised. 
So we kind of had a breather. Everybody, the whole team had a breather on the Saturday. And then it was briefing time again later on the Saturday. And uh, Dick Lee had allocated his, his investigation teams. I was teamed up with Martin Pritchard, now sadly no longer with us. Martin was one of the other undercover officers on Operation Julie. And Martin and I were um, tasked to talk to um, Lee Fielding. He was one of the main distributors. And obviously everybody else had their own uh, people. For example, Dick Lee and Peter Spencer, they were tasked to interview um, Richard Kemp. Anyway, we got on with interviewing Lee Fielding eventually. And I think this was the situation with most of them. They realized that there was just such a massive incriminating evidence, obviously gathered over, what, almost two years. Well, well over a year anyway. Uh, such a massive incriminating evidence, they started folding one by one. And eventually, uh, Leaf started uh, started telling us his, uh, his part of the, in the whole distribution network and eventually took us to some big, big holes dug in the grounds like uh, drops in, in the Forestry Commission. Then, uh, the first day we interviewed him, we recovered oh, one hell of a lot, hundreds of thousands of LSD tablets worth goodness knows how much. More and more stashes of LSD were being uncovered in the ground and found in various places. Uh, the biggest seizure of all was some time later, actually, well after the arrest, when uh, Richard Kemp's cottage in Wales, the floor, stone floor was dug up. There was a hell of a lot of uh, pure LSD crystal found there. Now, that alone was worth, by the prices in those days, was worth about £7.6 million. So and I think then what really brought things home to all of us was... Um, you know, the, the media, all I could describe it as is a, a media frenzy. You know, BBC, ITV, all the major news people were there. Fleet Street sent down its finest, including, you know, editors, uh, as well as the chief crime reporters. Uh, we had everybody there from every major newspaper, and you know, broadsheets and uh, the red tops as well included. Uh, it was just crazy. Uh, BBC did a they did a special operation Julie news bulletin, and it started at, as I say, I think it was nine, and it went on till ten p.m. It was the you know it was about five minutes ordinary news, politics, and all this, that, and the other, <laughs> and and the rest of it was Operation Julie. It was just phenomenal. It, it was phenomenal. Uh, you know, memories that will always stick with me you know and the press conferences after uh, uh, you know the 25 person original Julie squad were present those were happening uh, nearly every day it was just uh, unbelievable days I mean really it's it's hard to imagine the scale of Operation Julie when it all started coming together you've got the amount of suspects, the locations, how you get all the arrests together. And we're not just talking about arrests in this country, are we? We're talking about arrests 
across the world and raids across the world. Yeah, I mean, people, I'm sure, are aware that individual forces generally are individual council areas. So, you know, Nottinghamshire Police is Nottinghamshire County. And then the bigger forces like the Metropolitan Police and West Yorkshire and Greater Manchester and all that are amalgamated over the years into massive big police forces. But individual forces still operate as individual entities, really. So to get that organised, and at that time, if you think, there was no mobile phones, no emails, no fast communications between people like we've got today. And the enormity of it strikes you. And having been involved in, as I say, some similar operations, it is a huge logistical, almost like a military operation. And to get staff to go across the country around about that time was what they call regional crime squads were formed, which were units of officers ganged together, if you like, and, and came together in regional hubs so that they could have the time and the freedom to to go across the country to, to sort of other forces and help out. So that's what would have happened there. A lot of the staff would have been regional officers who were brought together for that reason. And, of course, they were removed from normal, everyday police work, so they weren't investigating other crimes. They were concentrating on this one. But that wouldn't have been enough, so there was more officers needed, and they had to be drafted in, and a security issue with, you know, information leaking out. The civilian side, you know, the scenes of crime officers, the laboratory staff, absolutely incredible. And, you know, it was all credit to them, a fantastic operation. Yeah, and like you say, it's not it's not just your frontline staff, your officers, your raiding parties and that kind of thing. It's all the what goes on behind the scenes that Joe Public never gets to to see, you know, the forensics and, and all that kind of thing. Very time consuming, very work intensive. So you might think you know how big Operation Julie was, but you know, tenfold is actually mm. probably what it was like. I mean, simple things like where are you going to take the prisoners to and how many cell staff are you going to have? How are you going to feed all these officers and look after them because they'll be there from morning till night or even for days on end? Take away the actual raiding through the front door and, and doing the job. There's the back office and the back of the uh, production is huge. And then you've got all this media coverage on one hand, you're having to deal with a very in-depth, complicated drugs operation. And on the other hand, you're having to deal with the media. You're having to deal with the press, the television and anybody else who's who's got an interest in, in what, what you're doing. I mean, it, it must have been something of a whirlwind that you're caught up in. And I think that's certainly um, Stephen's view on it. Because he described it as a media frenzy, didn't mm. he? I mean, it would have been the news of the day, you know. Uh, and I can't think of, since then, many operations that have used so many people on a on a massive scale across the world as well. So you've got, the, you know, that's another aspect. You've got a foreign country to negotiate with to get staff to do these things and different laws, isn't there? Yeah, you know, yeah. you know what's law jurisdictions in jurisdictions. And, yeah. What's law in France and their procedure is totally different than the UK, and and then the media on top. Hence, why today most 
police forces have media sections that deal with that, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do, particularly just to deal with press and TV and and these days that they didn't have during the time of Operation Julie, uh, social media, which is a is a whole new bag on its own, isn't mm. it? I mean, the uh, staff who were dealing with the prisoners and all the logistics of it and all the management of it, making decisions of what's going to happen, where and when, and, and being available, like everything, it's all fluid, isn't it? You're finding things and things are happening that you didn't plan for. So you've got to have somebody in command making decisions. And the last thing you want is being swamped by media people who are also wanting to know what's happening. So it would have been a quite confused, I thought, for a, for a day or so till it, the dust settled and you could see what were happening. But to put Operation Julie into context, we're still talking about it all these years later, aren't we? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, it's it was the benchmark, I think, for major police-type inquiries involving, which is the theme of what we've done, highlighting the undercover role of Steve Bentley and Eric. And, you know, the size now incidents in the in the world, terrorism involving national and international inquiries going on it it was one of the first of of any scale that i can think of so let's think about the the main players and and what happened to them after those raids and did stephen ever see smiles again the main offender was Kemp I understand and he got 13 years yeah uh, Kemp got 13 years uh, and I think I'm right in saying that Henry Todd also got 13 they the maximum was 14 they got 13 years for, because the judge quite rightly recognised that uh, you know Kemp was the chemist and a prime mover in his end of the operation and Todd was the prime mover and instrumental in manufacturing at the Seymour Road and and then the sentences came down on a sliding scale so to speak Smiles for example and Fielding that I mentioned earlier they got both got eight years it's quite an outcry at the time from a certain section of people saying oh my goodness 13 years but at the end of the day, you know, it was a it was a class A drug, and it still is, and they they were manufacturing it. The debate about the evils, whether it's better or worse than certain drugs, is another is another debate entirely. The point is, the law was at that time, and still is, that it's a class A drug. So if you're caught manufacturing it or distributing it, you know, the the, the chances are you're going to see the inside of a of prison walls. It's as simple as that, really. Uh, did you meet Smiles in the uh, cells? Uh, after uh, after arrest at Swindon Police Station, probably a couple of days after the arrest, things had started to calm down a little bit. And I went to Dick Lee because I was a little bit unsure about meeting him, to be honest with you. And uh, I went to Dick Lee and I said... Uh, Look, Governor, can, uh, I'm thinking about meeting Smiles and just having a quick chat with him. Do you think it's a problem? He said, oh, it's up to you entirely. So uh, I thought about it and I thought, yeah, you know, I really like the guy and I just wanted to go see him really, not to 
not to gloat, far from it. That's not my style, just not in me at all. And uh, the jailer out the cell door, I walked in with my drooping moustache and hair still fairly long. He was sat down on the uh, on the foam mattress on the what doubles for a seat and a bed. He looked up at me, no smile, and uh, and he's looking at me, and there was no smile because it was clear to me that he didn't initially recognise me. He's thinking, what's this guy doing in here, you know? So he's looking at me, and then the penny dropped, and then the famous smile appeared, and he stood up, and uh, we just embraced, hugged each other, and uh, I felt quite upset. I was upset. Uh, you know, it was a guy that I really liked. I think he had a good sense of uh, how I was feeling because all he just he just said to me as he was embracing me, he just said, "No hard feelings. It's all part of the game." And uh, you know, that was typical smiles. And I think uh, I think he genuinely meant it. He he, he knew what he did to make a living and he knew that one day there was a very very good chance that he'd be busted and he was i dare say on a, a personal level that because he he quite liked me too uh, i suppose in some ways he's thinking well i could have been busted by a real asshole and uh, rather than you know a guy who's just doing his job and is a uh, good company to be with I know that might sound weird, but, uh, you know, I think when you're in somebody's company for so long uh, and being a, a guest in their home and had some real good belly laughs together and some good times, you know, I think it's it's quite natural unless you're uh, a very unfeeling kind of person. Um, you know, and the other thing is, you know, when I was a young detective, and I was a detective at a very young age, I was I was on CID at 21, so I more or less just finished my probation in uniform, and bang, I was uh, I was on CID. So at the time, I'm with Smiles on Operation Julie. I'm 29:30. You know, so I've, I've been on CID, you know, detective duties for some time, and uh, something that I always believed. I still believe, you know, that there's a there's a very thin dividing line between uh, a really good detective and the criminal. Because to be a really good detective, you have to think a lot like a criminal. You know, you can't think as a detective. You can't think like a parish priest or a headmaster or headmistress. You, you you have to have a certain head for it. And the undercover role is kind of an extension of that. It's, it's magnified. And of course, you let off the leash, the leash being uh, normal CID duties, you know, carrying the warrant card and uh, going home at night, etc., etc. So you, you know, you let off the leash the only discipline really is your own self-discipline.
So thinking about it, it's the classic cops and robbers situation, isn't it? And that that thin line that you've got between between the two. If if you think about an organisation like a drugs gang organisation, you're looking at the distribution network. They they could have a hierarchy. They could be organised. They've got plans. They've got a system in place, and that is very much reflected in in the police and the people who are trying to to catch them. And when when you think about it like that, the cops and the robbers, the cops doing their job, the bad guys doing their job. Then, in the case of Operation Julie, and in particular, Stephen you then have to bring in that human element, don't you? Because on a day-to-day basis, they weren't foes, they were friends. And they almost became very good friends and they enjoyed time in each other's company and they had laughs together and they had drinks together and drugs together and, and they spent an awful lot of time together. So as much as they were on opposite sides of the fence, as far as their activities are concerned, their actual day-to-day engagement was pretty much the same. They were mates. I don't know. I don't know how Stephen would have felt. Kind of, is it it disappointment or is it a feeling that you've betrayed a friend or, or something like that? Because I can't imagine what, what it is that that he went through so that's why I say it's it's a classic cops and robbers thing and the line between the two is very very thin well they're clearly a professional outfit highly intelligent people at the top of the tree who would be used to meticulously planning things and doing things and and the way that the laboratories run as we've learned since we started this it's a complex and sensitive and highly dangerous manoeuvre, isn't it? So everything's got to be planned in a similar way. And and likewise, although they didn't know it at the time, the police were doing exactly the same on the other side of the fence, weren't they? They were planning, thinking ahead, breaking ground with new police techniques like Stephen Bentley and putting it all together. And as I always say, bring all the pieces of the jigsaw together. So there was professionalism on both sides. And it all came to an end on the same day. <laughs> it's very much a, a, a mirror image, isn't it? And when you think about it, there's there's some criminals that could have made really good cops and there's some really good cops that could have made very good criminals. And I think both of us can think of examples where the crossovers happened. Yeah, sadly, that, that has happened, hasn't it? There, there is very good cops that have made very good criminals. And, you know, it's that's life, unfortunately. That's what happens and in all walks of life. And the espionage world, we've mentioned that exactly the same thing. People work for the other side. People are bought, aren't they? Corruption with huge amounts of money. Dangle the carrot and perhaps you'll get somebody to take it. But as we know, those people are rooted out as quick as possible. And, and although we don't catch them all, most of them will a court in the end of the day and that's exactly what happens on on their side you know people 
decide that they don't like what they're doing and go and tell the police what's going off. It's cat and mouse, isn't it? The grass is always green. Yeah, and sometimes the mouse is bigger than the cat. After the dust settled on Operation Julie and uh, you had to return to your force, what what actually happened? Uh, well, it was a, a vast disappointment. I returned to my force and uh, somebody in their wisdom decided to post me on CID to a little place called Tadley, north of Basingstoke, between Basingstoke and Reading. Well, you know, the, John, there was nothing going on there, you know, it was... You know, a few bikes being stolen, a few meters being broken into. So these were these days were so far removed from my roots in Merseyside and uh, my earlier CID training and upbringing and experience, and of course, far removed from Pandawi Brevi. And uh, now, I, you know, having been undercover and, and then be, to be to be posted on CID. Tanley was a, a nightmare. It was a disaster. I stuck it out for a while, got a promotion to detective sergeant, ended up as a DS at Farmer, which was a bit more lively, a nice crew of guys there. Um, so, yeah, yeah no, I got my promotion. And as time went by, you know, people were resigning, Operation Julie people were resigning, Eric resigned from the force, Dick Lee resigned, and I really couldn't settle down. Really, really badly could not settle down. And to be frank with you, I think I had, well, I don't know, I think I definitely had a, a bit of a drinking problem at that time. Uh, a legacy, I think, from Operation Julie were, you know, drinking a hell of a lot of booze as well as doing drugs was part of the normal day, really. And, uh, you know, I, I, I fell into a, a depression and, uh, and then I had marital problems. So that, on top of all the other things, fell into a real depression. In the, in the end, I, uh, I kind of didn't seem to be getting any anywhere or any help from anybody. Uh, and uh, I had a, ultimately I had a, I was off, sick for a while with uh, diagnosed with clinical depression and uh, I thought no I'm not having this you know I mean to think about the way people were treated by the police but it happened and it happened to me and I was disgusted so in the end I went I'm not having it so I packed in and resigned. You mentioned the other people who resigned Dick Lee and the others were they in a similar position to yourself? They were they were they were disgusted, but Dick Lee certainly was. Uh, and Martin Pritchard also resigned. He was. He, he went back to uniform. Uh, Dick Lee was posted to traffic, uniform trafficker, somewhere in Thames Valley. I mean, it was just a disgrace. A lot of us, most of us, wanted it all to carry on, and it should have been a, some form of uh, inaugural national drug squad. You know, it was just frustration all around. But... Uh, uh, we seem to be getting the cold shoulder too. I mean, the cold shoulder thing is uh, Mr. Justice Park, who mentioned, sentenced all the conspirators. I mean, he, I think it was about two pages long, his commendation. I've got a copy of it. Even now I've got a copy. 
where he commended us. You know, he likened what we did to uh, things that only happen in wartime, sacrifices that are made in wartime, so on and so forth. You know, and I always remember the phrase, you know, all of these officers must be highly commended, not just by him. He didn't mean by him. If you look at the text that he meant by our own forces, I'm still waiting. So knowing how Stephen and others from Operation Julie were were treated when they got back to their force, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, having been involved on the periphery of of that type of work, it's always and not just police work. You know, as I've mentioned, we we read into espionage and spying and and all the that sort of world, and it's all very similar. But at some stage, obviously, it all comes to an end, doesn't it? The operation comes to a conclusion. And I'm sure that Dick Lee and others and Stephen thought that they'd got a template, really, of of a national and international drugs unit, which was ready-made, if you like, because they'd got the experience, the practice, and the wherewithal of putting that sort of operation together. And what they thought was a good idea didn't really go that far when it was up the chain of command and as we know some senior officers and chief officers don't understand and don't possibly agree with that type of police work and it doesn't mean anything to them and and we know now because some years later we did form a national and international regional drug squads and national crime units and exactly what they did at that time but it was of the time and now we've moved on. So from the work that had been done on Operation Julie and what it could have been, that was a missed opportunity and and it wasn't something that was taken up until years after. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what they did was the forerunner, like we've always said, but whoever makes the decisions at senior level within and outside the police, obviously didn't see on the horizon the massive big drug problem that brought the 70s and 80s with the heroin and all the rest of it. And we reformed then units that were basically what Operation Julie was on, on in principle, trying to combat the importation of heroin and cocaine from other parts of the world. And it's not uncommon. I've seen it so many times. Then you start from zero again and have to build up staffing experience and gain experience when we already had it and I think that was why Stephen Dickley and others left because they couldn't believe that all their efforts weren't really appreciated and you can't teach experience can you you can't you, buy it you, you can't <laughs> teach it you can't buy it um but they had it yeah they had that experience and they made those sacrifices. Take it from Stephen's point of view. He wasn't living with his family. He was 24-7 in a very difficult situation, pretending to be somebody else, living a lie and being friends with the characters that he was sent there to to watch and to report back on. And at the end of it all... um. The sacrifices he'd made 
when weren't recognised, were recognised by the sentencing judge, the trial judge, hmm. but not recognised by people within his own organisation. No. And the fact that he was affected by his undercover role and, and suffering from what we now know as some form of mental illness or post-traumatic stress. Uh, he clearly was alcoholic with his associations of his work with uh, Smiles and others. And, you know, at that time, I don't think it was recognised like it is today in many walks of life, the military as well. So today there is better safeguards. They obviously try and bring them out of playing the role and uh, do something for them, but it's never perfect. No, and and you can't, double negative here, you can't not be affected by the situation that you're in, can you? Because, like I've said, you live in 24-7 as somebody else, as a completely different character, but in the same way, you're still trying to be that police officer. You're still trying to do that job, living two lives, making the sacrifices that you've made, and then being treated in the way that you were treated once Operation Julie was over and done with, it's just not fair. No, I mean, and Stephen suffered for a long time, and as we know, he managed to turn his life around in the end, but it took a long time, and he lost the career he actually loved, wasn't it, being a police officer and doing this type of work or helping to set this type of operation up. But the more history you read, and, and as something just sprung to my mind, I mean, I, I remember seeing documentaries on people in the war, fighter pilots and all the rest. And the worst day of their life was the fact that the war ended because they loved what they did and got adrenaline rush doing what they were doing. And I think that's what happened to Stephen, isn't it? He, he loved what he did and it had to come to it an end. It had to come to an end, yeah. Yeah, you're right. But to understand more about what happened when he did return back to his force we asked his colleague Eddie Reed didn't we and and it's Eddie that we spoke to in in the last episode and this is what he had to say I think we're aware and Stephen says himself that when he returned from Operation Julie it had a big effect on his well-being and uh, he couldn't really cope with back in the everyday police work could he no that that is one thing that surprised me that what he had been through he received virtually no support whatsoever from the force he was he was just expected to continue his cid duties as, as if julie never happened you know it's, it's it's very odd very odd did you notice a big difference in him when you when he came back and you met him he, he was he was a lot more subdued i would say that than, than i remembered him he, he was he was still a, a a very funny guy, but he just seemed a little bit more subdued than usual than I remembered him in. Stephen, you mentioned after Operation Julie, you went back to day to day police work, that's probably the easiest way of explaining it, and suffered various ill health problems that resulted in you uh, leaving the police force. What actually did you do when you walked out that day from the police and never to return? 
Well, for a few months, I didn't do anything. I couldn't get any work, so I was unemployed. But uh, eventually, um, I found a job in sales, in selling, uh, double glazing of all things initially. But I stayed in sales and eventually uh, evolved into a sales manager selling much uh, higher class products than double glazing. Uh, uh, and that lasted for 10 years until a big recession, 1989-1990, which affected the building industry, which I was part of at that particular time. So that was the end of that job. So I ended up driving big trucks for a couple of years. And then uh, having recharged my battery driving up and down the motorways of the United Kingdom, I, decided, I reverted to my law background and uh, studied law at uh, university in London and eventually qualified as a barrister, having attended the Inns of Court School of Law in London and then managed to get myself a pupil barrister, pupillage as they call it, in London chambers. And then I practiced criminal law, mainly criminal law, for 14 years, mainly in London, but uh, sometimes out in the provinces, including Sheffield, which you guys know very well, and I love my time in Sheffield, really enjoyed it up there. So, yeah, uh, that's basically what I did after leaving the police force in, uh, in 1980. And now you're an accomplished author. Yes, I now write books for a living, and uh, I don't know about accomplished, but uh, it would be nice that uh, some people think that. Um, yeah, I write books for a living. I've got quite a few books to my name now and, and uh, intend to write a few more. I enjoy writing. Listening to what Stevens had to say about his his time after he resigned from the police force is really quite interesting because it sounds like he filled in doing lots of things. He obviously made a good job of his sales career because he did that for for quite some time and then the recession came along late 80s and that's when he went lorry driving and thinking about where his next escapade was going to to take him and that's when he decided to uh to get a law degree and then take the bar vocational course get a pupillage and become a, a barrister i mean that's that's a really interesting evolution into another career isn't it oh completely and i'm sure when he left he was in the doldrums for several years i would think things you know when what do you do when you've come from that high octane job of undercover policing and doing what he did to to unfortunately leave for the reasons he's given us and and then find yourself well what do I do now you know you're a cop and that's what you do isn't it and when you leave there's not a lot probably more opportunities today than there was then and of course he he went into his sales and the building trade work and who would have known if there hadn't been a recession, he probably would have stopped there. But he, he was versatile okay. enough and clever enough and bright enough to change direction yet again to what is, as we know, a very difficult profession to qualify and practice. It is, yeah. And when I think about 
my time in in practice, you know, I always think that you're playing a role when you're an advocate. If if you're in a contentious law, if you're in litigation, like Stephen was and like like I was, you're you're playing a part all the time, and that's really reflects what he was doing when he was living undercover. So what he was doing in the seventies then came again in the nineties, but by a different by a different guise. In Operation Julie, he was an undercover officer. In the nineties and going into the two thousands, is on a different platform, but still playing a part. Because as soon as you put that gown on and start addressing the court, you're a completely different person. I think he says that he's acting a role, and it is, isn't it? It's uh, in the in the theatre of the court, really, isn't it? It's a uh, you know your performance, isn't it? Is although you're prosecuting or defending people, it's still a role in front of the jury, isn't it? That you've you've took on and. It is interesting and it is challenging, isn't it? And I completely understand that. And I completely understand, um, you know, you've got you've got to be pers- persuasive. If you're, whichever side you're on, whether you're on prosecution or defence, you have to convince the court, whether that be a magistrate's court, a county court, a crown court, a high court, um, any of the appeal courts in the land, you are there to persuade those listening to you into a course of action. You're bringing them to your side so that they listen to you and they respond to you in the way that you want them to respond. And that's an act. Mm. It is. And, and clearly he did it for, was it 14 years? Yes, yeah. 14 years, I mean, and that's after qualifying, isn't it? You know, operational work, so to speak, I think. So it it was... Yeah, you've got three years of your law degree, then you've got a year bar vocational course, and then he would have done um, his pupillage. Which is like his apprenticeship, isn't it? Which is like his apprenticeship. And in those days, um, most pupillages were unfunded and so he was doing a job and potentially I don't know what it was like in his chambers but potentially not getting any money for it or very little or very little expenses problem (laughs) um so I'm pleased that he started off in a job that he clearly loved and enjoyed and then he went on to Operation Julie and that was the catalyst for a whole change in his life. But when he left the police, he found one career that presumably he enjoyed and he stuck with for, for quite some time. And then he was, I suppose, with the recession, forced into a change. And that, and of course, he was older by, by that time. And you start to think, you know, what else can I do? Um, and I'm pleased that he took the road that he did Mm. um, because he clearly enjoyed being a barrister and then that's taken him on to be able to do the writing that that he now does um, and be 
be very good at what he what he does and starting to be and very successful because his Stephen's story could have gone one way or the other hmm. and fortunately he's now doing what he loves to do which is which is writing um is living out in the philippines and we know from talking to him he enjoys life Operation Julie involved 11 police forces throughout England and Wales over a two and a half year period. It resulted in the breakup of one of the largest LSD manufacturing operations in the world, with the discovery of two LSD laboratories, one in Carno, mid Wales, and the other in Hampton Wick. It culminated in 1977 with initial seizures of enough LSD to make 6.5 million tablets. In today's money, the drug seized by the Julie squad would be worth some £626 million. As many as 120 people were arrested in the UK and France, and over £800,000 was discovered in Swiss bank accounts, which would be worth £4.6 million today. In 1978, the following year, 17 defendants appeared at Bristol Crown Court, Of those defendants, the sentences imposed on the individuals that have been mentioned over the past four episodes were Kemp and Todd were sentenced to 13 years imprisonment, Cuthbertson, 11 years, Solomon and Monroe, 10 years, Bott was given a nine-year sentence and Feeling and Smiles went to prison for eight years, while Douglas Flanagan received a two-year suspended sentence. It's been interesting doing these four episodes on Operation Julie, hasn't it? If you remember, right in the very beginning, we thought we were going to do just one episode for this podcast, but it was so interesting and so compelling that we just had to keep talking to Stephen and doing more and more research, didn't we? He's a barrister, so what does he do for a living? He talks. He talks. (laughs) And of course, the more questions we asked, the more he gave us and the more leads and directions to go in so what we thought would be a lot less of a commitment in time and producing the podcast we've had to condense it down to what we've got haven't we because Stephen just likes talking about it and there's a lot to talk about and there yeah huge huge amount I have to say I've, I've learned quite a lot how things were conducted in the in the 1970s, the the whole undercover operation. And when you think about how undercover policing's done these days, it, it just shows you that Operation Julie was probably the bedrock or the foundation of all of those future policing, undercover policing operations. What they achieved in the 70s, as far as undercover policing was concerned but also as far as collating information and gathering evidence on this kind of crime and organized crime which it is they were they were well organized i think the achievement that that everybody involved in operation julie made will resonate even even today and and i think they should be congratulated for for their efforts all those years ago and creating the foundation 
for all those undercover operations that have that have happened since. A fact highlighted by the judge, wasn't it? He could see what had happened, wasn't he? And made comment and congratulated them the way they'd done it. And that's what, what they did. It's a shame their force didn't do the same. Well, that's history now, isn't it? And we've moved on and things have, over time, come to where they foresaw it, but nothing was done at that time. But they foresaw the future, didn't they? They knew that that was the way to do it. Talking about the future then, John, our next episode, our next subject or case that we're going to uh, talk about, that will take us from UK to the USA and then to Australia. And it's interesting because it involves a wealthy, aristocratic man and an intelligent young woman um, and her subsequent murder. And we've already started doing some of the interviews in relation to that case. And I have to say it is, although it's a very sad story, it's very, very compelling and what we've done so far we've we've opened up a whole lot of issues in that the victim the young woman in this case never had a voice because because she was the victim she never had a voice and what came out in a in a trial was what other people said about her whether that be right or wrong. And what I feel like we're going to do in this next podcast is give her that voice that she's that she's never had. And I think that will be really, really interesting. And the main thing I'm fascinated by is your favourite film, Brief Encounter. Yeah, I can't, I can't say that I'd ever... I can't say that I've ever thought about this case as in a line with Brief Encounter. But yeah, you're absolutely right. In Brief Encounter, um, had... A chance meeting. Just a, just a chance meeting, a brief encounter, and their lives changed. And that's exactly the same in this case. If things that have happened two minutes later or two minutes earlier, a whole series of events would have never occurred and we wouldn't be telling the very sad story that we're going to be telling. So you're absolutely right. Brief encounter. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the past four episodes and our interviews that we've had with Stephen Bentley and about his part in Operation Julie. We have written a full article about the investigation if you need further reference notes. You can find those on our website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. And if you do pay our website a visit, you can also listen to previous episodes in this series. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Richard Ashwell. 
It was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. The excerpt at the start of this episode was taken from Undercover, Operation Julie, the inside story by Stephen Bentley and was used with the kind permission of Stephen Bentley and Worldmark Films Limited for exclusive use on this podcast. We are asked to advise that any further use of any part of the excerpts by any means whatsoever is not permissible. You can find out more information and case notes about Operation Julie by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all podcast platforms, and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you subscribe to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy the series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star racing in your favorite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.